Welcome to Pop and Lock. I'm Landry Ayers. And I'm Natalie Dowzicki. Joining us today to discuss Christopher Nolan's treatment of the caped crusader, the Dark Knight, the one and only Batman, is fellow at the Center for a Stateless Society, Corey Massimino. Hey, everyone. And research fellow in the Cato Institute's Robert A. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies, editor-in-chief of the Cato Supreme Court Review, and co-host of Libertarianism.org's own podcast, Free Thoughts, the one, the only, Trevor Burris. Thanks for having me. So Christopher Nolan's Batman trilogy is set in a world that's not all that different from ours. Criminal activity is high and corruption is obviously rampant in Gotham. And Bruce Wayne wants to fix that in a seemingly, let's call it noble way. But my question for everyone is, is Batman even really a hero? Can vigilantes be heroes? Yeah, I think that's that's probably the question at the center of those movies that no one is exploring, if anything. Um, and and I get probably like most good movies, I'm not sure that we get a definitive answer um, either way. Um, I think that it's really explored in the second one, um, in The Dark Knight. You know, that movie closes with Gordon, his monologue, and he says um, Batman's not a hero. He's something more, you know. So it seems like by the end of that movie, we're not supposed to think he's a hero, but does that imply he's a villain? I don't. It seems like maybe he's transcending that dichotomy. Um, Nolan tends to be pretty philosophical in his movies, while not with overt philosophical references like The Matrix or anything, um, but just in his themes and ideas and structure. Um, and, uh, you know, it seems to me, because uh, his movies, especially The Dark Knight, are influenced by The Dark Knight Returns, the Frank Miller comic book from the 80s. And in that one, there's similar overtones of Batman kind of being above these categories in some way, um, like a, like a Nietzschean overman or a Superman um, and, and go, going over above the categories of good and evil, that, that the morals of society and becoming something greater. So it seems to me that, that that's kind of what he's trying to explore with the character. Um, I mean, whether that's a correct take on what a vigilante would be like, you know, I mean, that's I think that's kind of an interesting question. I think that as just a general category, vigilantes can absolutely be heroes. Um, to say that they can't, depending on how we define vigilante, is to sort of endorse the state. If we're defining vigilante as some sort of extra state actor, uh, obviously, if you are living in a corrupt state, if you're living in a state that is that is has no semblance of morality. We could talk about what that is, like that there's maybe no, maybe there's no state uh, from an anarchist perspective that has any moral justification. But if you're living in a state, let's just postulate, you know, Nazi Germany uh, becoming a vigilante against Nazi Germany acting outside of the state is clearly morally justified. Uh, say the people who try to assassinate Hitler, for example, um, or 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 trying to hide Jews. So Oscar Schindler is a vigilante in some sense. Uh, now, if Batman goes out there and fights crime in what he views as a fallen and corrupt city, um, I think the really interesting thing about Nolan's Batman is that he is actually – he operates within the state in a very strange way. He works with the police, right? He he works with Commissioner Gordon. He works he, – he believes in due process, which we could talk about you know, not all vigilantism is justified. There's there's both the thing you're fighting against. If the state is corrupt and it's immoral, then you can legitimately fight against it. This is like 
Jay Brennan's uh, When All Else Fails book to some extent, which is an episode of Free Thoughts in the past, you can legitimately resist the state. Uh, everyone should believe that unless you think the state is some sort of omnipotent, all good force. But the second thing is, how do you have to do that? So when, when Batman, when Bruce Wayne re refuses to execute the prisoner uh, in Batman Begins, as on some sort of theory of, of due process, that he's not an executioner, uh, that he has a moral code that can be used to justify his actions um, to himself, but I also think to other people that due process is a meaningful moral concept even outside of the state. Uh, when, you, when you pass judgment on someone, uh, if you just say uh, in a social situation and you think someone stepped on your foot intentionally and then you decide to punch them out as opposed to assessing the evidence and seeing whether or not they stepped on your foot accidentally, uh, that's that's <laughs> a moral requisite uh, of being someone who acts outside of the state. But again, going back to what I said, I think rewatching the movies, I it was struck me how much Batman is working with the state and trying to make the state better. And especially the police, qua, qua the police. Well, that was interesting that you say that, Trevor, because I, that moment stuck out to me as well when he refuses to execute the murderer with Ra's al Ghul and the League of Shadows when they're in Bhutan at the beginning. And they don't really explain. He just like went to Bhutan after. Wait, do we know it's Bhutan? Like, I, I looked it up. Okay, and we were apparently, talking about this with my roommates. I'm like, where is this? Like, <laughs> I yeah, because I thought it was uh, like Nepal at one point, and somebody else thought it was somewhere else. But it, I looked it up. I don't know if it confirms in the movie like diegetically, but uh, apparently in the plot of the movie, it is confirmed that it is in Bhutan. But he just before this, so the the sort of path he's taken to get to that point was he goes to Mr. Chill, the man that uh, killed his parents uh, and shot them dead in the street in cold blood. He goes to his parole hearing and it, it is revealed that he had plans and was about to murder this man after he leaves the hearing. But someone with ties to the Falcone crime syndicate uh, beats him to it. And he's talking with Rachel as they're driving away and, and she's sort of talking about how there needs to be a system of due process and that these people will go to trial and that crime will sort of eventually justice will be served that way. And he says that the system is broken. And then between that and going to the crime like hideout and then going to Bhutan and getting sent to prison and getting beat up by all these people and joining the League of Shadows, he suddenly defines he's like, no, I like do, he needs due process. What what changed in that small trajectory relative to the rest of the film that made him believe that due process was was justified and, and, and worthy? I, I never understood that. Oh, I think is exactly what I said. Um Due process is not just a governmental state concept. Uh, it's 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 a concept of fairness that exists outside of the state. If if you're going to pass judgment, meaning somehow put punishment on someone, uh, the question of what it's the oldest question in justice, right? It really, it actually is. But, well, not the oldest, but you go to Hobbes and Locke. You go to you go to state of nature. Uh, in Locke's state of nature, there's two types of state of natures. Um, 
basically, this is something Randy Barnett told me one time when I was an intern, and I've thought about it ever since, that there are two types of of people, generally, Hobbesians and Lockeans. Uh, Hobbesians think that without the state, everything is chaos and just just like the Thunderdome, and everyone is fighting each other all the time. Lockeans think that without the state, things are generally cooperative, like most things kind of work, except for some things that you can't do. And the biggest one for Locke is that there's no impartial judge, that there that that no one can be the judge in their own case. And so you need someone to referee a dispute between two people, both of whom have an interest in the dispute. So the very concept of we need a third party who is disinterested in this to referee the dispute, that's Locke's first justification for the state. And that is some sense of due process, right? Like no one should be a judge in their own case. Um, and I think that that's exactly where Batman is coming from in that the, that the state apparatus in Gotham does not give due process under any conception of it. Um, and when he is asked to execute the person, he is not able to assess whether or not due process as a non-state concept has been given to this, this prisoner that he's supposed to execute. It's kind of difficult to reconcile those those two concepts together because on one hand, he's saying that uh, ostensibly saying that the state is corrupt and those who are trying to carry out due process aren't doing it. And he's very he's very he questions the the authority the state has. But then on the other hand, he's like very he's working with the police and very almost trusting of them and their motives. And they're, they're collaborating to some extent. So I think it's, it's kind of hard for me to see, like he agrees that the state is corrupt and it's not giving due process and all of what we've just been talking about, but then agrees to work with representatives of the state. So I guess that's like one thing that's difficult to reconcile throughout all three of the movies, not just the Batman begins. I, so going back to the issue of um, Bruce's arc and his motivation in Batman Begins to where he goes from wanting to kill uh, Joe Chill and then he doesn't want to kill the murderer. I don't know if I maybe I'm more pessimistic. I don't know if I interpret all this as a defense of due process, um, even non-state due process, which I, I agree that's not like a contradiction or um, or impossible. But um, but to me, like the key moment is or the key line is, uh, if I recall correctly, Rachel tells Bruce that his dad would be ashamed of him. And to me, that's the key line, because in a lot of ways, Batman Begins is, I think, about fatherhood and fathers in general. There's competing father figures for Bruce. There's Alfred, Lucius and then Roz as well, who he must kind of grow out of, I guess. Um and so it, to me, it seems kind of rooted in character and rooted in that and that needing to essentially make his father proud after he's dead and 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 do justice by that. And that kind of comes to fruition at the very end of the film when he decides, you know, I'm going to rebuild Wayne Manor brick for brick, um, just like it was. Um, and, and so the reason I'm pessimistic about the due process explanation is because, I mean he has a no kill rule 100%. He has this very clear, strict line that he won't kill. Now we could get into like what happens with him and rise at the end of Batman begins. That's a huge swamp of more responsibility questions, but like in just terms of due process in Batman begins, he also enters the premises of those uh, random people who live in Gotham looking for searching their place for drugs. Um, for instance, and then in the dark night, everything really escalates. And to me, I mean, 
that movie, if anything, is challenging this idea of how, to what extent we can maintain due process in the face of like an existential threat to social order that the Joker represents. Um, because, you know, he beats him up in the interrogation scene with, you know, certainly illegal tactics there and quite brutal. Um, and then, and then the surveillance at the end. So it seems like certainly due process is not, at least by that point, not the clear moral line. He's, he's, you know, the killing he sticks with, I think, but, uh, I don't know about due process. I think that, you know, Corey's pointed out something super interesting watching these again in the past few days. Actually, to be honest, I watched all of them yesterday, uh, <laughs> in a row, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, they're extremely post nine eleven movies. Oh yes, and, absolutely. And the question of torture, for example, or you know, enhanced interrogation, if we want to call it, uh, when it when it is justified, and also the question of chaos. And this was actually interesting because Barack Obama, in some speech he gave uh, regarding terrorism. You actually use the some men just want to watch the world burn line uh, and this concept of evil. And I think this is like a really interesting overriding theme in these movies. A, the concept of criminality is extremely reactionary and right wing, uh, that criminality is is a choice you make and you deserve all the opprobrium you can possibly put on you. Like criminals are outside. But Raz Ghul says this all the time in the first movie. Um but B, the fact that there are just people for no reason who want to just break things down and watch the world burn. And that, you know, is a concept of, that was very prevalent in post 9-11 America that we didn't really try to understand Al Qaeda and Osama bin Laden. We just sort of assumed that there are a bunch of people out there who for no, even, even though they claim to have an ideology, mostly just want to burn things down. And then you have this question of, well, what do you do in response to those people? Do they, do they deserve due process? Do they, or can we beat them up to learn about, you know, what their, what their plans are? And it just, the movie teams with that. But ultimately, I think it's quite reactionary. I, yeah, I agree. I agree, Trevor, uh, with, with a lot of, with a lot of that. I think that, uh, what you're talking about is kind of a way in which the Joker is, he's less of an anarchist in the sense of having any, actual theory of social or political order. Oh, he's more um, like an anarchist in the classic, in the like yes, daily sense more, of the way, in the, in the, in, you know, in the incorrect, like meaning. I think, in a, yeah, a more pejorative yeah. um, kind of comment, you know, every day certainly gets, it gets used as well, but I think a more accurate term would be nihilist. And I think those terms, now there are plenty of anarchists who are nihilist, but, but not necessarily, and many aren't so, but I think they get equated and, and that's kind of his, his ideology, I think, in that in that movie, uh, you know, he his whole character is sort of based around this uh, lack of ability to take responsibility for his actions. He he tells Dent that you know it wasn't his fault Rachel died. He's just a dog chasing cars. It was Gordon and Batman's fault, um, you know. And 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 by the end, that comes to its ultimate fruition in Dent, who elides responsibility with flipping the coin. And that I thought was a really clever way to create some sort of sensible rationale as, as much as you can, at least for a silly comic book thing as flipping a coin to make your choices. Um, you know, but it becomes this very like existentialist tale when Nolan tells it because Dent and Joker, you know, they, and this is, this goes to what you were saying, Trevor, about like criminals who want to watch the world burn, burn for no reason. 
in some way, the Joker might be that, but I, there's interesting things to speculate about what his past might truly have been, although he misleads us. But with Denton, we know that he is motivated, you know, by this, um, you know, this kind of tortured soul because his loved one was murdered and, and he feels like he has nothing to live for. He feels like the world is inherently unfair and absurd and, and uh, unjust. And so, you know, by the end, he's just, the coin has become his moral uh, compass, not him. And Batman says, you know, shoot, who's responsible? And he's talking about himself because he is responsible for Rachel's death. He could have he could have saved her if he wasn't. That's the that's the kind of contradiction of that scene in the middle of the movie when Joker tells him the address is backwards because Batman tries to save Rachel. And in that he's being selfish uh, because the city needs Dent more. But the Joker tricked him. So then he ends up not saving Rachel and saving Dent. And so it's this horrible karmic injustice. Um, and by the end, he's the one, you know, realizing that like responsibility is like this, this key thing that I'm supposed to take on in the world and the Joker intent, like don't. One thing that struck me that's kind of dovetailing on the end of this discussion uh, is you could not, you cannot be a vigilante going back to Natalie's original question without a theory of crime. Uh, it would be it, it, like if you so if you took some very very Marxist extremely social causation theory of crime and said that all criminals are a product of their environment and that crime is the natural result of say hunger and need and inequality or whatever that would be which which they do say in this movie they talk about the fallout of this economic depression that the the that Bruce Wayne's father helped write and eventually they exactly. tried to correct but that that they definitely hint at that within the movie yeah it's just, it's a theme i just want to point out like you as, as you said Landry and then also when Bruce becomes a criminal uh with the first time he steals for being Hungry, right? So it's like, how how would Jean Valjean fare in Batman's world, right? Would would Batman just go and beat the crap out of him, uh, or does he need to be someone like the Joker, you know, who doesn't actually have a reason for crime except for his own enjoyment, or Bane, who's an ideologue? That, that that's just some of the things that popped in my head watching them again. So before I rewatched these, I had in my mind that I liked the the second movie the best, partially because I think the Joker's character is the most interesting. Um, and then Aaron and I got in a little debate because he thinks Batman Begins is the best. But anyway, that's a that's another story. But I thought it would be interesting for us to compare the Joker and Bane and how they're different, or or what what kind of philosophies you think really help their character develop and um, kind of just discuss what the difference is between Joker and Bane and kind of maybe talk a little bit about their origin. I know we know more of Joker's origin than Bane's, but what do you guys think about the difference between the two villains? Okay, first I want to ask you a question. Did did you okay. then come to the conclusion that the third movie is better than the second movie? Uh, yes. Uh, so I went in thinking the second movie was the best because that's the one I like clearly remembered and I'd seen the most and I'd seen different parts of it the most and that kind of stuff. And I also thought the Joker was the most interesting, memorable villain. But then when I watched the third movie, I thought the pacing of that movie was I liked better. If that yeah. makes sense. So there are no, different I, reasons I liked the movies. I'm totally with you on this. This is a, this was a debate with my roommates who were having, uh, I now, yeah. <laughs> it's what I, what I, the, the dark Knight 
was better than I remember the, the, the last time I watched it when it, when its incoherency stuck out more to me. Uh, and then the third, the, but I do think that I, I kind of reverse order them and I don't think it's a huge gap. Like I think that I would give like Dark Knight Rises a nine and Dark, the Dark Knight an 8.5 and the Batman begins like an eight. So there's not, I'm not saying that these are, you know, it's head and shoulders, but I think exactly what you said, Natalie. I think that Bane's motivation and planning is more, evident and and the weirdest thing about the joker is and there's a old youtube video that made this comment where you just wonder how he gets this stuff done now i know we're supposed to suspend disbelief when it comes to the the joker has always and cory can cory's knowledge of batman is, is deeper than mine uh but like the joker always you know hatches schemes that end up working out but like he's got he's got lackeys who are like completely dependable and totally expendable, mm-hmm. and totally expendable. Like, like, so, like, I don't, yeah. I don't know where, I don't know where he finds these people that is just like, okay, <laughs> like you mm-hmm. always get things done, right? Like, imagine, you know, you, you guys, the bo- Aaron's your boss, and you know, you're totally dependable, Natalie, and then Aaron's also just willing to kill you, like, let you be killed for like no reason, <laughs> right? Like, like it's just like, yeah, like no one would work for him. Like, it's like, I know, it's like a stupid complaint. I mean, we're supposed to suspend disbelief, but then you make it makes a lot more sense that like, the logistical problems of Dark Knight irk me more than than the fact that Bane is planning something, you know, pouring the concrete with the explosives for months and months and months and has people working for him. Ultimately, I mean, the, the Ledger performance is rightfully regarded as legendary, but I think Bane is more interesting in, its, in his own way. I always thought that, I, and I don't know if this was on purpose, but I wondered if the sort of uh, the sort of schism between what the Joker says he is and how he actually acts is sort of part of his act like he he talks about chaos and being you know out of disorder and and the sort of that sort of anarchy influence that people always label him with whereas i wonder if he uses if he if he's smarter than like with what the public in gotham or even us as the audience sort of think of him as if maybe he is much more conniving and uh and and has you know all these lackeys and plans and things that are sort of going in and it's all part of the sort of as Ra's al Ghul says in the very very beginning of Batman Begins he says theatricality and deception are powerful agents and I wonder if there's a a, a part of it that doesn't really get spoken of and I I wish and I wonder if it's ever you know if it was on purpose or if it really was an inconsistency in the filmmaking that the Joker is supposed to represent someone that maybe the joke that he's playing is making us think that he's inducing chaos kind of like how all the villains do at some point in each of these movies like when Ra's al Ghul sends the whole the, all the narrows into a panic with the the panic inducing hallucinogen or with the Joker or when they blow up all the bridges and and pouring the concrete in uh in Dark Knight Rises I I wonder if he's much more much more manipulative than people give him credit for or if he really is something uh chaotic and and i don't know if that's something about christopher nolan's joker or if there's something about the joker overall and his uh sort of mythos behind him Corey, i really want to hear your thoughts going back to the point just exactly what andrew said which is i really was picturing like joker org 
morning meetings. Like, <laughs> just, just, just like, all right, guys, we're going to get together. Like, and you need to make sure that you are at the police station on time. Right. Like, it's like, this, like, like, you know, he's very, he's like, no, make don't, sure to, don't make talk sure out to of clock turn. in. Hey, I'm the leader of this meeting. There. Yeah. Clock in. I'm the leader of this meeting. Don't talk out of turn. Okay. You need to make sure you're here. You need to make sure you like, I mean, just like, you know, you kind of picture that. I can picture that with Bane. You know, but not Joker. But, I, but Corey has a deeper knowledge of Joker than I do. Yeah, yeah, a deeper knowledge about the really important things in life are pop culture characters. Um, <laughs> I, I think. Uh, Welcome to the show, Corey. <laughs> yeah, that's why I love it here. Yeah, but um, but yeah, the Joker is I think kind of so fascinating in that film. Um, Landry, you are, you started to touch on and what you were saying about how essentially Nolan uses the Joker as a foil for Batman because it because the Joker is also adopting the same uh, kind of outward, not the same kind of outward persona, but the same means of developing this outward persona that scares others, intimidates others, builds him up in the eyes of others, uh, you know, and then eventually gets other people to do what he wants. Um, And I think one kind of interesting way that Nolan tries to show this uh, in the structure of the film, and maybe this is related to Trevor's complaint that, the Joker's plans, like we never see how he uh, brings them about and realizes his, his plans. Um, But I think that's kind of interesting in a way because the Joker is presented to the audience in the dark Knight the same way Batman would be viewed by, by criminals. They only see him, you know, when he comes out of the night when he comes out of the shadows and pounces on them. Like they don't see him making plans. They don't see him organized. They don't see him making his suit or buying the Batmobile or anything. So the, the viewer is sort of seeing the Joker as the criminal sees Batman as the sort of omnipresent uh, force, this almost force of nature that just exists in the city. Um, and I think that's kind of a neat, neat way to approach the character because I think, I mean, moreover, the, if we're talking about Joker historically, in my view, Joker historically is, he's almost always insane. He's almost always supposed to be insane but to me nolan totally took a new twist on him and decided that the insanity is merely that mask that he wears and he's actually totally sane i mean trevor you joked about like these joker orgs in the meeting about telling them you know oh you better get to the station on time um but we kind of see something almost reminiscent of that because in the final sequence um and again they don't really tell us this but they show us because in the final sequence when joker is explaining the scheme to the people on the ferry boats about how they have to blow each other up by midnight or whatever he's reading off of note cards we see in the reflection in the mirror which is so at odds with what we know that persona of his that he's tried to show other people he has like, a speechwriter that's funny yeah yeah and and i think it's interesting like that is like a huge that like one shot is like a key insight into the joker's mentality like he's not insane like the character traditionally he's been he just is an ideologue like batman his ideology ideology is just nihilism like he's not confused or insane about it if he stood trial i don't think that you know no one would have him uh uh you know evade responsibility for his actions because that's i'm going back to what i said earlier about the whole point of of that movie is this kind of existentialist notion of responsibility and so that's why he turns the joker from an insane character into a sane nihilist i think to me, Bane seems more of like a methodical evil, and the Joker seems more like a catastrophic evil in the sense that, like, I don't think either of them are. 
I don't, obviously both of them are evil and both of them, I think in both movies, I could be wrong though, are at some point are referred to as like, as terrorists, which is like, again, harking back to what Trevor said earlier about these movies being uh, very evidently post 9-11. And I think what is kind of, what always puts me off about Bane is his voice. So I don't know if, if you all notice this, mm-hmm. but I think oh, with the Joker, he sounds insane. My voice, you say. <laughs> yeah, Bane's voice, like, doesn't match. I don't know if you guys say this way. It doesn't match his actions. Like, it's, it's, but that makes it almost creepier. I don't, I don't know. Maybe, maybe that's just how, Chris, yeah, another way Christopher Nolan is trying to portray Bane. But I just think the voice does not match up with like what is being said, which I think makes it even more interest, his character even more interesting because it's like, it's almost, his voice is, is kind of jovial in a way. He sounds like, he sounds <laughs> uh, like an aristocrat. Confusing. That's the thing. He sounds he, like, he sounds like, oh, he sounds like funny. the head, the headmaster of like a, that's of hilarious. Like a, a British school. Like, like, well, you people knew to know exactly. that you children yeah. cannot play in the yard today. Like, I mean, he, Head, like headmaster Bane. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing. He's, he's aristocratic. He's sophisticated. That's and, a great irony. I never thought of Trevor because I mean, yeah, that's, that's definitely true. I, I, um, I mean, on the Dark Knight, I haven't said anything about the Dark Knight Rises, really, but um, to me, that movie is like two movies mashed together. It's one, it's like half a movie about this dude with like depression and shit, and like getting through that, and, and then it's a movie about like the French Revolution and like a failed state, and like somehow it's both, and um, for better or worse, um. Which and it's just, there's a really funny layer of irony to that because Batman himself was inspired by the Scarlet Pimpernel in part, um, a hero associated with the French Revolution, and and saving you know aristocrats. So, um, so well, it's kind I, of I don't know if that was intentional by Nolan. It but is it's funny. It is. I looked a, it up. Uh, uh, that's intentional. Nolan Nolan was reticent to make a third movie because after Ledger's death, uh, he, he the intent was for him to for the Joker to come back for the third movie. And he was reticent to do it, and then he, until they came up with a, a character that he thought was going to be the very opposite of of the Joker, which the ba- which Bane oh. is to some extent. But his yeah. one of his big he cites one of his biggest influences is a Tale of Two Cities, and that yeah. is very evident in the eulogy in the eulogy that Jim Gordon gives to Bruce Wayne, where he actually uses the Tale of Two Cities. You know, it is a far far better thing I do than I have ever done. Like that is like from Tale of Two Cities. Uh, so, and I think that that Bane's aristocratic nature is meant to play into that those themes of the French Revolution. What does Nolan's Batman do differently than the other Batman? What what made it stand out? either from a tonal aspect or from how it changed his origins or um, what he represented. What what made Christopher Nolan's Batman something that generally was um, deemed much more successful than, say, the, uh, the Batman movies of the uh, decades before, as much as I enjoy the ones with George Clooney? Um, <laughs> what do you think gave them the critical acclaim and sort of popularity and allowed him to have a resurgence in uh, audiences' minds and hearts. Yeah, I love the George Clooney Batman. We should definitely talk about Batman <laughs> and Robin. Um, uh, but 
Yeah, that's a great question. I think maybe it was just the right time and place. Um, and, you know, like you said, post 9-11 take on the character. Pretty much every villain in the movies are a terrorist of sorts. The the League of uh, Shadow or League of Assassins, I think. It's League, League of Shadows of, in the comics. I, mixed it up. Yeah, but of Shadows. I think Assassins. they're League yeah. of Shadows. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, they are effectively a terrorist organization. See, you know, he says that we sacked Rome, we burned London to the ground, now we're going to try to destroy Gotham. So they're destroying, you know, these hallmarks of what we would usually call Western civilization. Um, and then certainly the Joker is a terrorist. And I think uh, Natalie pointed out Bane uh, also gets is called the terrorist. And uh, turning Batman into this sort of, it's almost like sins of the father, like, like he's not like, yeah, I mean, this is what we started talking about. Like he's not the hero. He's not a hero in the conventional sense. Um, you know, if anything, he's the best villain of the trilogy, right? Like he's like constantly, he's his own worst enemy, certainly. And, and we could certainly argue he makes some critical mistakes when he pursues to Rachel over Dent and gets her killed when he lies about Dent at the end of the dark Knight and it comes home to roost in the next movie. Um, you know, so I, I just think it was the right time and place. It was, you know, the culture wanted something this gritty and, and real. And and it's it's interesting because it sort of inaugurated a decade where the superhero movie was dominant. And we saw a lot of people like trying to copy, I think, maybe that's a little, you know, but to some extent really inspired by that gritty, realistic tone and certainly didn't seem to be as successful as, as Nolan was. It is interesting that Batman has had this life cycle of of in the 50s and, and of course the 60s show with Adam West like Batman is cheesy and more kind of stereotypically a superhero and as Corey pointed out the big change is with Frank Miller in the 80s and the Dark Knight the Dark Knight Returns uh, where he establishes this realism and I think that that trajectory is it's similar to a lot of things in pop culture where there's a let's say music there's an idea of of pomp and circumstance say take someone like elton john who has these huge shows with all these costumes and then there's the idea of punk rock which is like more authentic and you're playing in the small clubs and and that you need to sort of be in touch with that more authentic part of yourself and i think a lot of people started thinking what would actually make a human being do this what would make a human being put on a costume and fight crime because that is not a psychologically okay thing to do for most people. And then exploring the ramifications of that. And I think it, and as Corey pointed out, it was the right time. I mean, so 2005 when Batman begins comes out, there's no, there's no Marvel cinematic universe. There's the Spider-Man movies. There's the X, the X-Men movies and the, and the old Batman and the old Superman movies. Basically that's all of the superhero movies that exist at that time. So that's why Batman begins in particular was a revelation. Yeah. And you could argue with the MCU, you could argue that, I mean, you might not get the MCU. I think John Favreau, the director of Iron Man, said he was he was certainly taken in by the realism of Batman Begins. And and the first Iron Man really has a similar, not nearly as dark or gritty, um, but but a similar sense of realism and grounded in, in terms of tone. I, I think it's interesting to see the sort of dialectic between realism and escapism in uh, things like uh, superhero movies kind of push and pull over time because obviously as stuff like the the Marvel movies have grown and you know become so successful and huge and some people would call bloated um, I, I personally 
you know, at a certain point had to just sort of stop. But I'm also not the biggest Marvel person uh, when it comes to like the Avengers in general. I like, you know, certain superheroes and things like that. But then you go all the way over and sometimes I'm like, Batman, you need to lighten up. You're a comic book. Like you, you were, you were a comic book. You got to remember that. Like at some point I need a holy something in there just to sort of remind me where we were coming from. Bat shark repellent. That's the, yeah, (laughs) I, I kind of like, and I think that's one reason that I think maybe the, uh, George Clooney uh, Batman maybe just didn't arrive at the right time is because it's just so wacky and comic booky that I don't know if people really appreciated it for when it came out. Uh, and I think now it might there might be specifically probably within you know the realm with the internet having become as big of uh, a place as it is not that it wasn't around when that movie came out but i think maybe it would be received by an audience that wanted that type of super superhero movie a little bit more now um so i'm just very interested to see how that dialectic plays out over the next you know decade two decades or so to see which kind of direction things get started to pull in I mean, Corey, Corey is a fan, right? He's, he's a fan of the Clooney movies. or, or the, the Yeah, Clooney well, there's one, the, yeah, Clooney movie and then Kilmer and the other one. Uh, yeah, I mean, I could talk I could talk for a while about I think those are underrated and they came out at the Which one has time. bat nipples? Is that both, Clooney? I, or, I think, I thought both. Like, do both have bat nipples? Okay. At, at least the Clooney one. <laughs> okay. but, but, yeah, <laughs> definitely the Clooney one. You get the, the that swooping shot in before, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, that, those movies I think would, I mean, this, you know, the, we should mention the the trailer for the new Robert Pattinson Batman movie, you know, dropped what, a couple weeks ago, I guess. You know, yeah. And it's certainly the case that they are, you know, going more, continuing this route of a more Nolan-like Batman, this this kind of guy with, with quite severe anger issues, in a sense, and, and uh, takes out on criminals. Um, they're going that route over the escapism, lighthearted 50s comic book stuff, which Schumacher was inspired by with Batman and Robin. That's what he was going for, so... Yeah, I was just going to say, too, that uh, what struck me with the Nolan trilogy is that Batman goes through some very, like, real human experiences and emotions, stuff like trauma and fear, and especially when it comes to Dark Knight Rises, this whole idea of, like, well, rising, but, like, rising above yourself and, like, being able to um, come back from, like, depression and stuff like that. And I think those are all very real, very deep topics. And I haven't, I haven't seen the George Clooney version of Batman, but from what you guys are describing, it seems a little bit oh. more shallow. Oh, um, and oh not, no. <laughs> yeah. Do, I know Landry don't, don't hurt me or anything, but maybe we just, can do just that ima- in just the future. Ima- just <laughs> picture this in your head. Picture Arnold Schwarzenegger as Mr. Freeze making as many puns about, <laughs> about cold weather as you could possibly make in a given five minute period. That that's basically take that. two of these and call me in the morning. <laughs> yes, exactly. It's oh. my favorite. <laughs> I knew the Schwarzenegger impersonation was coming. Oh gosh! But um, anyway, it's so like, not a Duma. <laughs> Someone stop him. Okay, um, he's here. Arnold Schwarzenegger is in my house with me right now. It's amazing. Um. Okay, so. I don't want to stop our Batman conversation without talking about how great Anne Hathaway is as Catwoman or Selina is her name in the movie. Uh, I just thought 
she was awesome. I also like I have a soft spot spot for Anne Hathaway, partially just because I love the Princess Diary movies and I always will. But um, I just thought it was really interesting that she was kind of obviously painted as a uh, not a sidekick, but her and Batman fought fluidly together. Um, and I just thought it was really interesting how they brought her into the mix in the third movie. And I kind of was wondering what you, what you all think, what she added to the movie or the importance of what was the importance of her character? I kind of went back and forth on this because uh, one thing Nolan realized after the debacle of Spider-Man three, like, well, I would like to think that he realized this where you put too many villains into a movie. This also kind of occurred with Batman, Batman forever. And to some extent, uh, the Val Comer Batman um, that, that, with both in the Dark Knight with Harvey Dent, so adding in Two Face and then adding in Catwoman, but having them not become like a secondary pole, like a like a P O L E, like a, a pole of villainy where you have to fight with both of them, right? Um, and making them be associate characters in some way, I thought effectively introduced her. Now it's interesting that the fact that she's Catwoman is not necessarily crucial in some sense. Like, I mean, she, like she's a thief. And so I guess that matters, but like um, it's, it, you know, she's her character as Selena Kyle kind of matters more um, than her being Catwoman. I mean, she has to be able to fight, I guess, but I mean, I think she did a great job. I think she did better than Michelle Pfeiffer, I would say, uh, but. Uh, oh my God, I'm leaving the chat. Well, I like, I like Michelle Pfeiffer's aesthetic more because Tim Burton <laughs> really put together a great aesthetic on that. But I think that the character is a bit more rich. But Corey apparently disagrees. <laughs> no, I mean, Corey, I don't go wanna, ahead. Tell I us your thesis. I don't want to just – Your Michelle Pfeiffer uh, thesis. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I mean, it, it, it's kind of related because I think that um, – you know, this was such a grounded take on Catwoman as no one always does. And right. I don't even think she gets called Catwoman. Um, so I think a big thing for her character is, uh, you know, I think like this goes to what Natalie was saying. The Dark Knight Rises is really about about Bruce's trauma uh, and, and depression. And I mean, he's very clearly depressed at the beginning. Right. He's living as a hermit. Um and he really has no will to live, nothing to live for. And this is the most overt any superhero movie has come to really exploring depression um, or or using the superhero identity as a metaphor for mental illness. The closest you get is the Burton movies because there it's less depression and more um, split personality. Uh, you know, my, uh, Batman says in, to, to Catwoman in Batman Returns, we're split right down the middle, we're the same. Um, you know, so you have a metaphor for mental illness in those and and I love that about those movies. But in The Dark Knight Rises, you you get this even further. And Catwoman, to me, I mean, the whole arc for Bruce is, right, like he has to figure out something to live for. Like he only sees one end of his journey. Like that kind of line gets repeated a number of times. And the movie tricks you into thinking that he's going to die. And, I mean, maybe you think he dies. Like we haven't really talked about if the ending is to be interpreted literally. I think it is. I think it's supposed to be a happy ending that he overcame his depression and that Selena was that new person that he, that, that helped him find a will to live. Um, you know, they kiss at the end and then it seems like that's when he decides like, Oh wait, you know, I, I guess I maybe have something to live for. Uh, I won't die with the bomb. I won't, you know, become a martyr. Well, he becomes a martyr, but he, I won't really die. <laughs> uh, I apologize to all of you, but the correct answer for the best Catwoman is Eartha Kitt. Um, <laughs> so 
I'm sorry to tell you how wrong you all are. <laughs> Though I do love the, the <laughs> fact that in the new Batman, the Batman that will come out in a few years that with Robert Pattinson, um, that uh, the Catwoman of that is going to be played by Zoe Kravitz, who I think is really what? interesting. But also, yeah, and she voiced her in the Lego Batman movie. <laughs> That's yeah, even better. I know. <laughs> but sadly, uh, number two on the list, uh, you know, sort of battling out Zoe Kravitz is Halle Berry. I don't know if you guys know. But yeah, uh. she's uh, she's uh, she's the second best Catwoman. I don't know if you guys realize. <laughs> Andrew, your deep cuts are getting too deep. <laughs> <laughs> <That's> not, <laughs> never, never. What, the cuts what are, are the, never too deep. One of the worst deep. movies ever made. <laughs> okay, wait. Because I know we're like we're kind of running out of time, but we, we, we have not talked about the police and the and the, I mean, right now, like this, these especially Dark Knight Rises, uh, right? The rioting, the police are as heroes. Um, it's extremely reactionary in the sense of quelling crime and holding the police up as as icons. Um, you know, we have a very we have a clash at the end, basically a, a sort of medieval style battle of the police rushing in. It all seemed, you know, for the movie made in 2012 for Dark Knight Rises, I was like, man, this is really relevant. <laughs> like, uh, I mean, it, like, <laughs> Occupy Wall Street has already happened, you know, the inequality things and returning power to the people and stuff. But in this sort of, you know, turbulent time, uh, it it was quite striking to me and ultimately batman is on the side of the cops which is interesting yeah i think that goes to the way nolan viewed the character and like the angle in which he wanted to explore him uh uniquely and that you know he's this he's the symbol or or he has this ideology essentially you know of the the rule of law except you know for me sometimes i don't know he's the symbol (laughs) of order like that, <laughs> yeah. Batman is weirdly the symbol of order. Well, that's so interesting. The the concept of the Batman as a symbol also kind of irked me with what like Ra's al Ghul was saying at the beginning of Batman Begins, which which Bruce pounces upon and it's like, no, he's right. I can do this before he sort of realized who Ra's al Ghul like was was really about and what his his intentions were. Um, was that he said that, you know, as a man, he can be killed, but as a symbol, he's incorruptible. And I was like, I don't think that's true. Symbols get corrupted and <laughs> like stuff all the time. They get repurposed and, and manipulated and, and people still try. I mean, and maybe it's the fact that, you know, Batman was able to stop people from corrupting his image. Like he's able to stop the police from dressing up as him. But they say like, this is the only, they said like, we dress up like Batman and they wear hockey pads because that's a way that they can sort of uh, get people to sort of fear them because he inspires fear. But I mean, I think anyone who's been involved in a movement will tell you that symbols get corrupted all the time. So I, I did think it was a little uh, naive of Bruce Wayne to be like, as a symbol, I can be incorruptible. Totally agree. Totally agree. Yes. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, it's also, Go going back to what Trevor was saying about how police are portrayed well throughout the trilogy, but more so I'm going to focus more so on the Dark Knight Rises is interesting because the at one point the when Bane is like ruling over Gotham and they have like a tribunal and they're making all of the uh, former corrupt represent representatives of the state. Uh, 
like go before this tribunal and then they have to walk across the ice or they have to go. Um, oh, important thing though. And, this is, he says this multiple times, Scarecrow. This is not a yeah. trial. This is a sentencing, right? That, that's like, right. One of the, like this, you're not, you're, this is not a trial. It's before a tribunal, but it's not trying anything. It's, it's just sentencing them because they're already guilty. Right, exactly. So it, I just thought it was interesting because all along the movie has been, the movies are very, um, and, and Batman himself are very like pro police in the sense that like police are the ones that are establishing order and Batman's kind of like helping, like bolstering them almost. I don't know if that's the a, a great word for it, but you know, we're going to go with that. I think that towards the end, uh, definitely in front of that tribunal when they're being sentenced, it's interesting because it, we had already been revealed that like, um, oh my gosh, I'm blanking on the police commissioner's name. That he had lied and sent all those people to jail. Gordon, there we go. Uh, Gordon had already been revealed to have lied um, to create the Harvey Dent Act and sent all of these uh, sent all these people to jail, and they'd been in jail for eight years. And he kind of we kind of reveal kind of the bad things that the police have done in the name of like fixing corruption and getting rid of the gangs and all that kind of stuff. And I just thought, I just thought that whole interaction with like having them go off onto the ice or being sentenced was an interesting way to kind of end that this towards the end of the third movie, interesting way to end that kind of statement on police. But at the same time they made, um, is it, is it Blake? Yeah. They made, they seem to have made Blake who is a, a newer police officer ostensibly be like the one who's continuing on Batman's legacy and I thought we should definitely talk about Blake before we end up end our Batman discussion and also talk about this could also talk about the end of uh, the Dark Knight Rises because Blake is that young police officer that seems to be learning about Gotham and learning about the intricacies of like the corruption and that kind of stuff and learning from Bruce Wayne. And in a way, um, when I was preparing for this podcast, I was reading up some and they Christopher Nolan did not want to put in a ro- uh, a Robin like obviously Batman's like sidekick, but in a way, Blake kind of fills that role. And I was kind of wondering what you thought about like having him being a police officer, having him be the one that's like continuing Batman's legacy in a way, at least that's how I saw the ending. Well, well, does he, is it sort of hinting at not that he becomes Batman, but does he become, is that Nighthawk? Is yeah, that who well, that they, is? they say his name is Robin. There's that, you know, very on the nose, like you, right. your, your real name is Robin, like, which is fine. Um, I, I do want to say like, so, I mean, just a quick word, you know, as a lawyer who works on criminal justice issues, uh, watching the Harvey Dent Act, it's, you've, you know, I have a general principle that any law named after a person is a bad law. Uh, this is especially true if they're a dead kid, like uh, like dead kids. Ooh. Dead kids make really bad laws. Um, mm. Is a piece that Bradley Balco wrote for Reason years ago that like you you create this law in a fervor like fervor to like fix a problem, and then it ends up. I mean, I yes, I think you could do an entire exploration of why the Harvey Dent Act was used, probably illegitimately, like Rico was eventually used uh, to ensnare all these people and put them in prison. Uh, definitely, that's true. But but with Robin, I mean, it's you know, I think I think the, uh, the Joseph Gordon Levitt character is uh, really good in that movie. Actually, I, I think he's a good foil of someone who knew, and he also knew that Bruce Wayne was Batman when he saw him. Uh, which is an interesting, like, I think, twist in that. Yeah, he is called Robin explicitly, so he's kind of this interesting take on the character. Um, 
I kind of think Nolan's refusal to do any sort of traditional Robin sort of speaks to like the way he sees the character of Batman quite differently. Um, you know, Batman in a lot of ways, I think historically he's supposed to be a kid at heart, right? I mean, he's still, he's still a kid who's in the alley afraid, you know, that he lost his parents and, you know, he's afraid to trust people now and form new relationships because of that. It's very kind of simple, you know, uh, age old kind of story. And Robin is, that's why Robin exists. Cause he's a kid. He's another kid that Batman can help guide and, and, and who's suffering through the same stuff. And, uh, you know, so I, I think the, the performance by just, uh, by just Gordon Levitt's really good. I love that scene where he deduces Batman's identity, which I think, uh, Nolan takes from Tim Drake, the third Robin. I think he figures that out. He's one of the more smart Robins, um, He's sort of an amalgam, uh, Blake, of a lot of the Robins. But on the Dent Act, though, that Trevor, you mentioned, what's so, to me, a thing that's so frustrating about The Dark Knight Rises is that doesn't seem, that plot point seems to get lost in a lot of it. By the end, they don't really come back to the Dent Act or say if they're, are they going to repeal it and come up with something better? Or should we just see the cops beat, you know, the, the rioters, the prisoners, and arrest them, and then... You know, we don't really get a satisfying, to me, conclusion with the Dent Act, which they indicate was not perfect. And now for the time in the show where we talk about all the other pieces of media that we have been enjoying while we've been on lockdown. This is Locked In. Corey, Trevor, what else have you been occupying your time with? In quarantine, I've been watching a lot of Movies with my wife, directed by Yasujiro Ozu. So this is a sort of weird place to take the Batman talk. But uh, Yasujiro <laughs> Ozu was a, uh, a Japanese uh, a filmmaker in the 40s and 50s and 60s, um, and he made he made over you know two dozen films, lots of movies. They're on the Criterion Collection, which is a streaming service. If anyone likes old movies or uh, uh, you know obscure films. Um, uh, you should look into the Criterion service. Um, it's a really, really convenient uh, streaming service that lets you watch these movies. And they have tons of Ozu's movies. And his movies are, um, they're contextual yet universal in their in their morals. They're all about mid-century Japan, post-war Japan specifically, and about the slow destruction of the Japanese family, the, the way that American culture slowly infiltrated Japanese culture and changed it and transformed it um, in terms of the norms around consumption and, and, and work and marriage and relationships. Um, they're really fascinating. Uh, they're very slow and, and quite minimalist and, and still he, he almost never moves the camera. He, you can almost always tell when it's an Ozu movie by just, by just a one clip or a second. He has such a distinct visual style. Um, but we've just been binging a bunch of his movies, um, cause they're, they're really quite enjoyable and interesting. So that's, I guess, kind of random and obscure, but, but if anyone is interested in like old art movies, uh, he, he's just one to look at. For me, um, aside from uh, going, to the, I mentioned a video game, uh, uh, playing Tony Hawk Pro Skater Remastered One and Two, which was like, which was like my fi- my fingers just going out of the controller and being like, I'm home. Uh, <laughs> 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 so, but um, I would say, ap- so somewhat apropos of the conversation today, one of the more striking things that I've read during lockdown has been a. I'm not going to call it a comic book. Uh, it's, it's more of a graphic storytelling uh, thing called My Favorite Thing is Monsters by Emil Ferris. And this is a 
it's it's a I've never seen anything quite like it. It is told as a notebook. It's a, a notebook of a of a teenager, a teenage girl that she draws in her notebook. She makes she talks about her life and draws pictures and writes things down in her notebook. So the entire thing is presented as if it's a, a three ring or spiral notebook with with three hole punches in it. Um, and it's not a comic book in the traditional sense of having panels. It's more of a, a unique work of art uh, that is extremely striking and very evocative. I've never seen anything quite like it. And I think it deserves a lot more attention. Uh, I've been reading graphic storytelling in the broadest sense since I was five years old and it was entirely novel to me and I, I highly recommend it. My favorite thing is Monsters by Emile Ferris. Cool. I'll have to check that one out. For me, I so this weekend I was um, at home visiting uh, my parents and I actually we got on this weird tangent of watching the Robin Williams documentary that just came out. Um, the one, I guess, that his wife helped uh, either fund and or do the research for about um, discussing Lily body dementia. And I thought that was really interesting. I'm also, uh, I love basically every movie that Robin Williams was in. Mrs. Doubtfire is one of the most underrated one, but you know, we can cover that movie another time. Um, But uh, I watched that documentary and then I watched one of his older documentaries or one of the older documentaries about Robin Williams that came out in uh, 2018. So still after he passed away, but um, it was interesting because it clipped together. It was called Robin Williams inside come inside my mind, I think. And it clipped together basically all of his best performances before, um, even before like when he was a comedian and what hadn't switched over to film or voice acting yet. And I thought it was, I thought it was super interesting, just kind of easy, easy watching And uh, Robin Williams is a great actor. So I think, uh, if you're interested in learning more about his life and, um, different roles, I think both of those movies are very interesting. And they're also uh, very educational in terms of like the disease that he was struggling with. And then other than that, I've been reading, I've been reading a lot. So I, um, finished in cold blood and I just started five years, which is just a, it's a fiction novel about a woman who, has a, uh, what I think I'm a hundred pages in what I think is a mental illness. Um, because when she falls asleep, she has these very real life experiences that are five years in the future. Um, and so far it's, it's really good. Cause like the chat, the chapters go back and forth from when like she's living her life and then she lives her life five years in advance, um, during the nighttime. So, so far it's really good. It's a, it's a New York times bestseller. Um, and then after that, I plan to read, Man in the High Castle. I uh, I'm currently watching the TV show, but I've now been told by like five or six different people that the book is is way better. Um, and usually I try to read the book before I read any or before I watch a movie and or TV show about it. But I actually didn't know there was a book, so after that I plan to read The Man in the High Castle, um, which maybe a, could be a show we cover on Pop and Lock. But there's also four seasons, so that would be a lot of binge watching for a guest. <laughs> Well, uh, I have uh, a few things I've been occupying my time with. One of them, I went back and rewatched the first season of and watched some of the second season of is the Netflix show American Vandal, um, which really got slept on, even though I think it is so funny. It seems like it's a simple conceit and that the joke will run out very quickly, but it becomes a very interesting, nuanced story. Uh, It's a brilliant sort of it's brilliant. It's if you haven't seen it, it's a sort of spoof of the making a murderer style documentary on Netflix. But the crime is 
that at a high school, a, a student is suspected and accused of drawing uh, phallic images all over the cars in the teacher parking lot. Um, and it becomes this really hilarious, dry uh, spoof that also is an, a cool meditation about like uh, the criminality and uh, sort of assuming the worst in people, specifically young people. Um and while it's hilarious and you'll recognize a lot of the people, they bring an amazing, real sense of emotion to the characters. Uh, and if you watch it all the way through to the end, there's some great twists and turns that make it interesting. And it, it, it's much more than just what the trailer makes it seem like, even if the trailer itself is very funny. Um and then the second season is a bit more gross in its premise, so it, it involves a little bit more bathroom humor. Um, but from what I can tell, it also is is sort of in a similar vein, you know, true crime, but set in a high school um, in a, a goofy manner. So I highly recommend American Vandal. If you have uh, a PC with Steam or a Nintendo Switch, you should get the game Billion Road. Um, it's not gonna like change your world like you know the witcher or uh outer worlds where you go and explore this amazing world it's basically mario party meets monopoly in japan (laughs) so you go around a little board and you buy properties and you get monsters that help you along the way and you roll dice and you try and earn lots and lots of money over the years and you try and you know have the most money and total assets by the end. But then there's also monsters that come down like goofy, like cartoon kaijus that will come and like crush your buildings and you have to send your monsters to go and fight them. It's very simple. It's like, it's a great like board game that you can play on your switch. It's very cute. Um, And I highly recommend billion road. If that's the kind of thing you're into my wife and I have been playing it a lot over the past few weeks. Um, And the other thing that uh, if you're interested in games or writing, um, it is a it's sold as a game, but it's really a book of writing prompts. It is a book called Thousand Year Old Vampire by Tim Hutchings, Um, and it is a single player role playing game where you roll and basically get a bunch of writing prompts that help you right in the diary of a vampire that has lived for at least a thousand years. And you sort of detail events in this vampire's life and people that it has uh, met and, you know, things that drive it. Um, And it's, it's just a really interesting way to sort of force yourself to, like world build or uh, if you want to sort of put something with like a screen down, you could either write it by hand or open up just a word document. Um, and it's, it's just enough structure to make you feel like you're not completely lost, but just open enough to make you feel like you can really go anywhere with it. So if you like that kind of thing and want a new creative outlet uh, or a sort of thing to sort of spend your time doing away from uh, a screen, I highly recommend thousand year old vampire. Holy credits, Batman! Thanks for listening. If you think the Batman is just some rich guy in spandex who thinks he could take justice into his own hands, or if you have another hero in mind you think could take him down, let us know on Twitter, at PopAndLockPod. That's Pop, the letter N, Lock, with an E, 
pod. Make sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. We look forward to unraveling your favorite show or movie next time. Pop and Lock is produced by me, Landry Ayers, as a project of libertarianism.org. To learn more, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.